We're in Ezekiel chapter 36 tonight. We'll take the whole chapter. Hear the holy and perfect word of our holy and perfect God. And you, son of man, prophesy to the mountains of Israel and say, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because the enemy has spoken against you, aha, and the everlasting heights have become our possession. Therefore prophesy and say, thus says the Lord God, for good reason they've made you desolate and crushed you on every side, that you would become a possession of the rest of the nations, and you have been taken up in talk and the whispering of the people. Therefore, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains, to the hills, the ravines, to the valleys, to the desolate wastes, to the forsaken cities which have become a prey, and a derision to the rest of the nations which are around about. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Surely in the fire of my jealousy I have spoken against the rest of the nations and against all Edom, who have appropriated my land for themselves as a possession, with wholehearted joy and with scorn of soul, to drive it out for a prey. Therefore prophesy concerning the land of Israel, and say to the mountains and to the hills, to the ravines, the valleys, thus says the Lord God. Behold, I have spoken in my jealousy and in my wrath, because you have endured the insults of the nations. Therefore thus says the Lord God, I have sworn that surely the nations which are around you will themselves endure their insults. But you, O mountain of Israel, you will put forth your branches and bear your fruit for my people Israel, For they will soon come, for behold, I am for you, and I will turn to you, and you will be cultivated and sown. I will multiply men on you, all the house of Israel, all of it. The cities will be inhabited, the waste places will be rebuilt. I will multiply you on you, man and beast. They will increase and be fruitful. I will cause you to be inhabited as you were formerly. I will treat you better than at the first. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. Yes, I will cause men, my people Israel, to walk on you, to possess you, so that you will become their inheritance, and never again bereave them of children. Thus says the Lord God, because they say to you, you are a devourer of men, and have bereaved your nation of your children, therefore you will no longer devour men, and no longer bereave your your nation of children, declares the Lord God. I will not let you hear insults from the nations any more, nor will you bear disgrace from the peoples any longer. Nor will you cause your nation to stumble any longer, declares the Lord God. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel was living in their own land, and they defiled it by their ways and their deeds, their way before me was like the uncleanness of a woman in her impurity. Therefore I poured out my wrath on them for the blood which they shed on the land, because they have defiled it with their idols. Also I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed throughout the lands. According to their ways and their deeds, I judged them. When they came to the nations where they went, they profaned my holy name, because it was said of them, These are the people of the Lord, yet they have come out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations where they went. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my own holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you back into your own land. 
Then I will sprinkle clean water on you. You'll be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh. I'll give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you. I'll cause you to walk in my statutes. You'll be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, so you'll be my people and I will be your God. Moreover, I will save you from all your uncleanness, and I'll call for the grain and multiply it. I'll not bring a famine on you. I'll multiply the fruit of the tree and the produce of the field. You'll not receive again the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. I'm not doing this for your sake, declares the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, On that day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited, the waste places will be rebuilt, the desolate land will be cultivated, of being a desolation in the sight of everyone who passes by. They will say this desolate land has become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste, desolate, and ruined cities are fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left round about you will know that I am the Lord, that I have rebuilt the ruined places, I have planted that which was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will do it. Thus says the Lord God. This also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them. I will increase their men like a flock, like the flock for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feasts. So will the waste cities be filled with the flocks of men, and then they will know that I am the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray that you would have mercy upon us and we would know you, Lord God. Just not not know things or truths about you, Lord, but we would know you. We would know that you are a holy and a just God and you hate sin and the sinner found apart from you, you won't vindicate. And we pray, Lord, that we would know you as a gracious and a merciful and a loving God, all bound up in the God-man, in your Son, Father, Christ Jesus, and that you're infinitely merciful. We pray that we would see again that you delight to bless your people, not because your people are good, we're not, but because you're good. And we ask, Almighty God, that your name would be glorified even in the the worship of, of your name tonight. Amen. If you look at um, chapter 36, where what we just read, maybe verse 1 is um, would be illustrative of it. God the Holy Spirit directs Ezekiel to continue using um, metaphorical language or figurative language. The book of Ezekiel is highly symbolical. I, I think the only book that I would think was filled with more symbolism would be perhaps the book of Revelation, but it's highly symbolical. Um, and so God uses metaphorical language. It's not to say that there's not a, a, a true or a little, literal meaning to it, but he does use figures of speech. He says in chapter 35 to Ezekiel, I want you to preach against Mount Seir, um, and it stands for Edom, the Edomites. And then now when we come to chapter 36, he continues to use, um, is it a metonym? Is that what the word is, metonym? He uses the figure of of the mountains of Israel, the hills of Israel, the ravines of Israel, to stand for the people. So he's continuing to use this figurative 
um, mountains for people speech. And in this particular chapter, God the Holy Spirit inspires Ezekiel to preach expressly to Israel. And we understand that he's primarily speaking to Judah. Judah's in the Babylonian captivity in the historical context, but he's he's preaching to the mountains of Israel, the people of, of Israel. And you remember where we are in the book. If I could back up maybe a bird's eye view of the book of Ezekiel, the first 24 chapters of the book of Ezekiel is God, I think it's 24 chapters, 1 through 24, is God every single chapter is saying Israel, 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 every chapter. And then I think by the time we get to chapter 25, he introduces seven Gentile nations, and then he extrapolates on those Gentile nations to the to the end of 32, and then we pick up uh, speaking back to the Jews, primarily. Last time we saw he's speaking to the Edomites. First 24 chapters of God speaking expressly to his covenant people, it was primarily a word of judgment. He was telling them, as I told you, you were going off into captivity for your sin. He kind of recounts some of it here in our chapter. They were idolatrous, they're murderous, those kind of things. They were living like Gentiles. So he took them off to Babylonian captivity to be corrected by living with the Gentiles. So a, a word of judgment. And the principle that was being taught in those first 24 chapters, which Paul, excuse me, Peter picks up is, judgment begins with the household of God first. Will God judge those outside of the household of God? He certainly will. That's what we pick up with in chapter 25 of Ezekiel. But the first 24 chapters, God's telling his people, I will have my people who are called by my holy name live holy lives. And when we don't, he brings either judgment on the unbelieving in the visible household of faith or chastisement to the erring believing in the household of faith. And what we have here tonight is God continues to address Israel but he switches gears as far as thematically, I, I would say. So first 24 chapters, judgment, 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 judgment. This is, a, this is a blessing passage, even though God does say, here are some of your crimes and your sins against me, and then he kind of extrapolates on that. But this is primarily a count your blessings. I'm going to walk through. It's not, it's not going to be perfectly chronological the way that I arrange it, but I'm going to arrange it logically. God is going to say to his people, I'm going to bless, I promise I'm going to do this good thing, and I promise I'm going to do this good thing. I promise I'm going to grant you faith, grant you repentance, I'll regenerate you, I'll cause you to be born again. I promise I'm going to bring you to a a better than Eden-like existence. Promise, promise, promise a blessing. That's chapter 36. But it comes on the heels of a great bit of, uh, uh, of judgment. And so God switches from the themes of Righteousness and holiness and is an offended wrath. And now here in chapter 36, God shows us that he is merciful, he's kind, he's forgiving, and he means to restore his people. So these are words of, a, of comfort. And one of the wonderful things about the word of God, one of the wonderful things about our, our God, is that God being infinitely and all wise gives his people the words that we need for each and every situation. When we need a harder word, a corrective word, he sends it. When we need a more gracious, gentle word, he sends it. The people of God are enduring a 70-year captivity in Babylon. Now, will they be will they be utterly broken such that they would all turn to God in mass and live godly? No. But they're, they're somewhat broken people. And so God shows us, at least principally, um, 
there is, there is a time and a season for everything. There's a time to speak judgment to people, and there's a time to say, you know, God is loving, and God is kind, and God is merciful, and, and, and God will forgive you, even though you're, you, you continue to struggle with sin, which is what he says at the back half of the chapter. Um, but he's going to forgive you not because you're good. He's going to forgive you because he's good. So we, we would be wise to study the people that we're in front of, and when we intend to share some word of God, we would be wise to study the people and the circumstances that they're in. If you're with a very broken-hearted, tender person, perhaps that not, might be the person to share um, the reality of hell and judgment. Perhaps it might be better to speak a word of gentleness and kindness. Um, we, we see that. In the previous chapter, in chapter 35, as I said, God inspired Ezekiel to speak against Mount Seir. We said that Mount Seir represents the Edomites, which the Bible says it represents the Edomites. And we said further from looking at the book of Isaiah that the Edomites represent the enemies of God and they represent the enemies of God's people. Uh, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Esau, Edomites are the descendants of uh, Esau. And what we saw in chapter 35 is God promises to exact his vengeance on the enemies of his people. It's a blessing. We mentioned this last time. The people of God, the children of God, the church of God, the church of Christ, vengeance has not been given into our hands. Um, I, I don't, I'm not a big T theonomist, so I don't think the church wields the sword. I believe the Bible teaches in the New Testament it's a, a different epoch than the old. And so the New Testament church wields the, the, the sword of the spirit. It's the civil magistrate that wields the sword. So vengeance doesn't belong to us. So when the church of Jesus Christ, which is the little flock, suffers abuse at the hands of another people, we can, we can have recourse to the civil magistrate for protection. And beyond that, we have recourse to the, 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 to the great magistrate. But we don't, we, we don't take up the sword against those that persecute. And we see here this beleaguered, suffering, captive people. God says to them, those who seek to destroy you, you're not going to destroy them. Vengeance doesn't belong to you. It belongs to me. And I will someday put down all of those who, who seek to put you down. That's chapter 35. And God continues in that vein. If you were reading along with me in chapter 36, in chapter 36, he continues up until uh, verse 7 along the same idea. And what you see in that first part of chapter 36 is God the righteous judge actually lists out the charges or the crimes that Edom has committed against Israel, his people. And when you think of that, what God is reminding his people who are in captivity, he's aware of the abuse that they receive at the hands of their enemies. He's aware of the crimes, the sins that they commit against him and against uh, them. God's recording them and God is just to repay and the wicked, conversely, are being taught that God is, that God really is. And God acknowledges when we sin against him and when we sin against his people. You remember God says to, to Israel here, they're sinning against me. He's identifying himself with his people. And Jesus does the very same thing to the Apostle Paul. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Meaning when Saul was attacking the church, it was attacking Christ, the head of the church. God says the very same thing. You're attacking my people Israel you're attacking me, the one who's married to Israel. And God promises to his people that all of the injustice brought against them 
will someday be brought to justice. This is not that the people of God take pleasure or that we're, in, we're vindictive. We do long for justice to be done to the, those who, who seek to destroy the, the church of Jesus Christ. Even in the book of Revelation, chapter 6, the souls of those who are beheaded for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ, what do they cry to Jesus? How long? How long? How long, O Lord? How long before you vindicate us? We suffered unrighteously. We were murdered unrighteously. And how long? And Christ says it will come. So we are being taught um, part of the blessings of God for his people is that we, we don't have to take these things into our hands. I wish the church would truly believe this. I wish that there would, no, be, there, there, would, there would be no Christians that would ever seek to take some kind of so-called vigilante justice into their own hands. Um, we don't have to. We have one that defends us. And now in this um, particular chapter, what we're looking at from verse 8 onward is the positive counterpart of what I just mentioned. Negatively, he'll put down his people, but positively here, God is saying, I'm going to bless your people. Now, I want to define blessing a particular way. When I am using the term blessing, at least tonight, in the context that I'm going to use it, I mean some perceived good or some perceived pleasant thing. And I say that because I understand that there can be things which are painful to us. That when we look at them rightly through the lenses of Christ in eternity, they can be probably the biggest blessings, painful things. I'm thinking of the thorn in the side and the flesh of, of the Apostle Paul, which was called a messenger of Satan. That was actually a blessing of God. It crucified Paul's carnal pride. It kept him from puffing himself up against Christ. It made him more serviceable to Jesus. So anything that conforms us into the image of Jesus is a blessing. But I'm not using the term blessing to include those things which we, at first glance, we think, well, this is painful. I'm using blessing strictly along the idea of something that we perceive is good and it's pleasurable. And when I introduce the, the idea of good and pleasurable, you think, boy, I use some kind of strange Christian hedonist, as if you could use those two words. I think some very famous person did use the word Christian hedonist, but uh, that is to say that we're to live for pleasure. Uh, the Bible says there is pleasure at the right hand of God. Is it Psalm 16, verse 11, something like that? So we're created to glorify God and to enjoy God, to find pleasure in God. And so when we're talking about blessing, it's not always, I guess we're depicted as Presbyterians as being morose and super grave and oh, I'm totally blessed. I can't believe how blessed I am. And, and you think, well, boy, why don't you tell it to your face? But the Bible does speak about blessings, blessings such that we would want to jump for joy. I know I'd probably lose my job as a Presbyterian minister if I started jumping for joy, but that's the kind of thing that I'm getting at for blessings. If you were an enslaved people and God said to you, I'm going to free you, would it just be like, oh, that's interesting. That's really nice. I, I, no, no, you would be leaping for joy. These people were imprisoned. They were impoverished. And God says, I'm going to free you and I'm going to super abundantly feed you. You would be weeping for joy. And that's how I'm using this idea of count your blessings, something which is clearly recognizable to the people of God as a blessing. 
There are two scriptures that I think clearly, one Old Testament, one New Testament, that uses the, the, the term, the idea of blessing in that kind of something pleasurable, something easily perceived as good sense. One is the Old Testament, is Psalm 1. Blessed is the man. I think the underlying Hebrew is Asher. It can sometimes mean happy. And in the, in the, 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 the Beatitudes, you have from five chapter, uh, chapter 5 in Matthew uh, to 12 is the end of the Beatitudes. 13 to 16 is the similitudes. Jesus says, Makarios, Makarios, Makarios. Blessed, blessed, blessed. But it can also mean happy, happy, happy. And again, that's another thing that as, as I suppose Reformed people, we try to make a super fine distinction between joy and happiness. I really don't know what that is. I, I know there must be some super duper theological, biblical distinction between those two. I don't know what it is. Um, Charles Spurgeon said Christians should be the most happiest people on the planet. Um, John Jonathan Edwards, not any kind of fanatical fellow, said heaven will be a place of consummate happiness. So happiness is an okay thing. It's We don't mean something frivolous, but we mean something that you have a smile on your face, you have a bounce in your step, there's a lilt in your voice because you are happy. We're happy in Jesus. We're happy in, in God. We're happy with the blessings. And it shows on our face. And this is kind of the notion of blessings. And as we're, I know we're looking at this chapter kind of thematically as God's saying, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to bless you. Who is the one that gives these blessings? Who is the one that gives these blessings? Uh, the Lord Jesus' half-brother James uh, says this, every good thing, good thing, every good thing, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. shadow. I'm going to argue from this passage that we see two types of these blessings, physical, temporal blessings. We see spiritual, eternal blessings, um, bo- both kinds. Beloved, beloved, the Bible says if you find a wife, you, you found a good thing. If you found an excellent wife, you found an excellent thing. She does her husband good all the days of her life. It's better, a good wife is better than gold. You can take that to the bank. And when God gives you little children, I know our culture says no, but God says they're a blessing to you. It's an immense blessing. So when we're looking at God blessing, he's going to say to the people, you are hungry and now I fed you. It's okay. It's not a sign of being unspiritual to say, thank you, God, for my health. Thank you, God, for my wife. Thank you for my husband. Thank you for my children. Thank you for their lives. Thank you for feeding them. This is what he's saying here. I know sometimes when people, well, I thank you that I'm justified, and they enter into a sermon. It's not even prayer. You're not even praying. Yes, we should be thankful for those spiritual blessings, and I'm going to talk about some of them. But it's not wrong to say every good gift. That's why we say the. That's why we pray before we eat. There are tons of people that go to bed hungry. Tons of them, and tons of Christians that go to bed hungry. I would argue probably the larger portion of the world doesn't eat a fraction of the calories the average American Christian eats. Not a fraction. Not a fraction. Look in my closet. How many shoes do I have? How many suits of clothes do I have? It's ridiculous. Goodness. And God is saying, I'm going to super abundantly bless you. Every time we sit down, if we were the hungry ones, and we sat down to a big old meal, what would we do? Thank you, God. Thank you. If we were bereft of our children, if our children were taken away in slavery, and then God brought them back, what would we say? 
Thank you for my children. Thank you for their freedom. Every good gift is from... And I've mentioned before self-recrimination. Um, I, I wrestle with melancholy, melancholy. That's a sin. It is a sin to be melancholy. It is a sin. Is it constitutional? It's constitutional. But it's a sin. I don't want to be a grumbler. I don't want to be a glass is half empty guy. It is a sin. Why? Because the glass isn't half empty. The glass is not half empty. Our cup runneth what? Over. Well, I can't see it. Then look again. God says to his people in slavery, I'm bringing you out. God says to his hungry people, I'm going to feed you. His enslaved people, I'm going to free you. I'm going to bless you. I'll bring your children back. I'll multiply the nation. I'm going to cause you to be born again. We're not, rook- we're not looking at, I know it's a kiddie song, I, the, the, the children's Sunday school, count your blessings one by one. That's not a kiddie song. That's not a kiddie song. That's Ezekiel 16, 36. From, from verse 8 on, here's a blessing, here's a blessing, here's a blessing, here's a blessing. My wife and I at worship this afternoon, we were reading through Psalm 34. Taste and see that the Lord is what? The Lord is good. Chapter 36 is a, is a chapter that says to God's people, I am good. And I want you to recognize me as good. And that God is a giver of gifts. You remember there were, there were three fellows. They got talents or minas, depending on w- whether you're looking at Luke or I, I think Matthew. And he, God in Christ gives five, let's say, talents, and then two talents, and then one talent. And the guy that gets the five talents, he goes out and he's, he, 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 um, he engages, he serves, he uses the five gospel talents, and then it gets more. And likewise, the two. But you remember the guy that gets the one talent, he buries it in the ground. And he says um, he uses the word scleros in Greek, which means you're a skinflint. You're hard and skinflint. He says you're a mean and austere man, and I know you reap what you didn't sow. You got a talent. You got a talent. It's wrong of us to look at God and because we're looking at the wrong thing. Why did you give me a sick child when I wanted a healthy child? Well, you have a child. Why do you have a child and someone else doesn't have a child? Why did you give me this husband or this wife? Will you have a husband or a wife? Why did you give me this job instead of that job? Will you have a job? Why do you have eyes and hands and feet? And there are plenty of people that don't. So we're looking at the wrong thing. And what God is telling is, is and they're in, they're in slavery here. He says, I want you to acknowledge, acknowledge me that I'm good. We, we can, I, I suppose Christians split up all over the, I mean, we split, we split up too much. It's, it's, it's kind of sinfully silly how much we split it's sinfully silly how much we split. Even people that are Westminsterian, it gets ridiculous how much we split. You get the, the regular micro-Presbyterians like us, and then you've got the uber-micro-Presbyterians. It gets, it, it, it gets ridiculous. But we can learn some things from our other brothers and sisters in the Lord that maybe approach things a little bit differently than us. Some of our Pentecostal brothers, and I don't mean just they're conjuring it up, and sisters, they have some real joy, joy. They, they can be looking at, wow, look at the blessings of the Lord. Look at what the Holy Spirit is doing. That's legitimate. We can learn from them. And so it, it's, it's not a sign of spirituality to be depressed. Um, perhaps we're not looking at the right thing. So God is saying, I'm the giver of blessings. Listen to what God says through the psalmist. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. 
No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. What's the greatest gift that God gives his people? Christ. And in Romans chapter 8, he says, not only does he give you his best gift, Christ, his son, but in, in Christ, everything else. And that's really principally what God is telling his people here in Ezekiel 36. I am a giver of good gifts. And even in um, slavery, I'm going to promise you good gifts. And we can live on those. And we should, by faith. I mentioned the types of blessings that chapter 36 uh, contains. We see physical and temporal. Um, It's an agricultural time. God uses agricultural language. Some of the blessings will be agricultural. He says, essentially, I'm going to bring you back from slavery into the promised land. And the land will once again be flowing with milk and honey. And, but even those blessings, will he really do this? Will they really be restored to the land? Of course they will. They come under the three waves. They were deported in three waves. They, are, they have three waves of returnees under Ezra, Nehemiah, and Zerubbabel. So yes, they're, they're physically going to come back. But even the physical restoration of the physical temple, of the crops and the buildings and the physical peace, and all of those kind of things... Even that points forward to the, the higher blessing. And so the restoration to the promised land, the restoration and the refurbishing of the temple, yes, it really happened when, it, when God said it's going to happen, but it points to something infinitely higher. Read Hebrews chapter 11, 1 through 40. The Old Testament patriarchs, when they were looking for the promised land, did they think that it was exclusively and only a renovated patch of dirt in Palestine? No. It really was a renovated patch of dirt in Palestine, and God did, did, did give it to him. But what kind of home or city was Abraham looking for? One that no human hand constructed. It's heaven. The earthly promised land, the earthly temple, that's the type. It's pointing forward to the anti-type. That's what God says, I'm going to bring you to a place that's going to be better than Eden. No sin's going to be there. And so even the temporal blessings point us forward to the larger blessings of the spiritual and eternal. And those are certainly listed here. When we get to chapter 35, I quote this passage all, excuse me, uh, chapter 36, uh, uh, verse 25 and following. I quote this all the time. This is what it means to be born again. God says, here's one of my blessings. I'm going to take out your stony heart. I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. What's that? That's spiritual regeneration. That's the book of Titus. That's John 3, 1 through nine you must be born again and god says i'm going to do it for you i'm going to give you spiritual life from spiritual death i'm going to do it i'm going to give you the grace evangelical grace uh, gift of repentance you're going to hate your sin i'm going to give you that ability i'm going to give you saving faith we don't conjure up saving faith it's a gift of almighty god read ephesians 2 1 through 9 god gives us the gift we're justified or saved in the Lord Jesus Christ by the grace of God, gift through faith, which is a gift. So the temporal points forward to the larger, the spiritual. And God again tells his enslaved people, I'm going to do all of these things. As my wife and I, again, were having worship, I said, well, what are some of the things that you recognize, the ways in which you recognize that God has blessed you? And we walk through, we have children, four beautiful grandsons, and we're thankful to God for our home. I never thought I would own a home. I was poor as dirt. I never thought I would own any of that. And God has given me these things. And then beyond that, we both said almost simultaneously, and we're believers. We, we, we really have repented of our sins. We really do believe in Jesus. Jesus has saved us. 
and we know we're going to heaven. And that's the greatest, that's this. That's this. So even if you're in slavery, and you, you, you'll, some of these people will die in the 70 year slavery, God says, I, I, I promise to make you alive, spiritually alive from spiritual death, and I'm going to bring you to heaven. I'm going to bring you to a better than Eden-like existence. And we are called to live and die on that promise and to be happy with it. And I know you may say, well, Pastor John, you seem happy now, but you might seem depressed when you leave. That's true. That's very true. I'm up and down like a yo-yo. And I have my road to hoe and you have your road to hoe. But this doesn't mean that we ought not to try to encourage ourselves in the Lord. So God promises in 8 and 9, we've already talked about it a little bit. Here are some of the blessings that we can just kind of run through. Um, God promises to take this place that the crops, remember, um, the Babylonians came in, they sacked Judea, they sacked Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple, um, they robbed the people, they impoverished the people, they enslaved the people. God says essentially this, with the agricultural language, um, all of the crops that were destroyed, I'm going to give you new crops. The land and the buildings that were burned, I'm going to give you new land and new buildings. Um, you'll no longer be robbed and impoverished. I'm going to give you the wealth of the wicked, as it were, as we find it. So instead of emptiness, God's children will have fullness. Jesus, in Luke chapter 6, says, Woe to you who laugh now. Why? Because you're going to lament and cry later. But then he says, Blessed are you who, who, who cry now, who weep now, who are impoverished now. Why? Because you are going to be super abundantly filled. And that's what God is saying to these people. You might have nothing, but there's coming a day when I'm going to... There's a place in the Bible that uses the storehouses of heaven. We can't even imagine the riches that really belong to us right now in Jesus. We only know in part. We only see in part. We think, yes, I'm forgiven. Yes, I'm forgiven. We should just camp right there forever. (laughs) Yes, I'm forgiven. And I'm brought into a reconciled relationship with the triune God. And he's not going to damn me. He loves me. He's going to receive me. We can spend eternity. I'm sure we will spend eternity. But we don't see it because of the, because of the, 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 the shadow that lies over us with the world of flesh and, flesh and the devil. That's why heaven's going to be so great. Those things are gone. And so God says to the people, I'm going to restore the people. Um, I'm going to multiply the people. And so we're going to have fruit, fruitfulness in the place of barrenness. And then in the place in 13 and 15, the next blessing that he says essentially is that the people of God will no longer bear the indignities of the insults of the enslavers of God. When I was a kid, I don't know if this is true now with little kids. I suppose it's true. Uh, Little kids can be pretty mean little creatures. Um, And and, uh, we used to say, um, what was the little ditty? Sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. And then you proceed to say vile things about the neighbor, trying to get the neighbor boy to cry with the vile things that you say about him or his mother or his father, something like that. You're abusing them with language. Well, sticks and stones can and do break our bones, but names really do hurt us. So God says to the people, you are physically abused, I'm going to restore you. And he says to the people, you're verbally abused. And you're no longer going to be verbally abused. A blessed are you, Jesus says, when people what you, when they insult you. 
and they run down your... Some people sitting in this room tonight, for your Christian testimony, you've been told, oh, you're the Holy One. Oh, that's some kind of nice Christian you are. You don't walk on water like Jesus. Therefore, you're a fake. It hurts. To be insulted as God's people, it hurts us. And, and some of us come from homes, oh, really? So Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to God. No one comes to the Father but through Jesus. So all the Muslims, all the Hindus, all the Buddhists, and your little religion is the only right one? Okay, crazy man. Narrow, mean, spirited, homophobic, transophobic, whatever, a phobic. Well, I just love God and love the Bible, lunatic. God says there's coming a day, then that's all going to go away. No one is going to insult you anymore. To use the language of our shorter catechism, one of the benefits that we enjoy, we enjoy benefits uh, in Christ now, in this life, when we die, and at the resurrection. One of the benefits that we enjoy in the resurrection, which this chapter is alluding to, is we will be, you will be, openly acknowledged and acquitted on the day that Christ comes back. He's going to say to the world that mocked you, you were right. You were right. And they were wrong. You won't be insulted anymore. Uh, We will be vindicated by Christ himself. That's a blessing. That is a blessing. And that's one of the blessings he promises his people. And then in 16 through 20, I want to be quicker here. This one doesn't actually look like a blessing because what he does is he recounts the sins of Israel, both that brought them to the land of captivity, what they were doing in the land of captivity. Sometimes we think like this. Well, the people of God were brought up into Babylon, and boy, did they learn their lesson. And they repented of living like filthy Gentiles, even though they were Jews. They repented of their sins, and they humbled themselves, and they called upon the Lord. Mostly they didn't. Mostly they were living like vile pigs in Babylon. If you read the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah, did the people of God instantly get back into the land when they were restored and start acting right? (laughs) No, they were awful. The rich Jews were buying and selling and enslaving the poor Jews. They were doing just what they did. And you think, well, that doesn't seem like a blessing. But there really is a blessing here. You cannot sin away the grace of God in Christ. The calling and the grace of God are irrevocable. God says in the next section, I'm going to bring you back into the land, not because you restored. You didn't. You were still living in sin in Babylon, and you're still living in sin when you come back. I'm not bringing you back into the land. He says it a couple of times. It's not because of you. He says it's because of what? This is a promise that God will treat us according to the principle of grace and not strict justice. If God treats his people according to strict justice, no grace, strict justice, which is the application of the law, what would happen to us? The best Christian. The best Christian, the best works of the best Christian, read chapter 16 of our confession on good works. The best works of the best Christian could never stand the strict justice of God. There's too much of us in him. Would here depart from me, you work of iniquity. I never knew you. But God is saying to his people, I'm not going to treat you as your sins deserve. I'm not going to treat you according to strict justice. I'm going to treat you according to grace. Beloved, I'm here to tell you, it is a good thing when God tells his people that still struggle with sin, I'm going to take you to heaven because I'm a gracious God, not because you are a good believer. 
If we only went to heaven because we were good believers, guess what? We wouldn't go. God says over and over again, because my name, because my name. And then he says to them, just like they'll no longer insult you, he says in this, he makes as a promise, they're no longer going to insult me. Beloved, I, I, I know this happens within you. If, if, if someone insults you, it hurts you. If they insult your, your mother or your father, it hurts you more, does it not? If someone insults your God, your Christ, I mean real believer, you really love Jesus, and they insult Jesus, wouldn't you rather them insult you than insult Christ? And God s- says to his people, there's coming a day that I promise you that all of my enemies and all of you, your enemies will never take my name in vain again. They'll never insult me. They'll never blaspheme me. It, we will be, in a, it will be in an epoch, in a time, in a sphere when all the people will hallow, hallow the name of God. Imagine being in a place where no one will deride our God, our Christ, only praise him. Is that a blessing? And then we, we've talked about the spiritual regeneration part. I'm going to give you f- repentance. I'm going to give you faith. I'm going to give you the principle of new life. I say all the time, well, the Bible says it. If you really believe, I don't mean you could just move your lips, say that you believe in Jesus, but if you can really believe, that is a miracle. The better part of humanity, God does not gift that ability to. God gives repentance. God gives faith. And men are still responsible. How do I figure that out? I don't know. That's God's business. Men in their dead in their sins and trespasses are still culpable before God to repent and believe. But they can't. But if you can, God has done the biggest miracle in the world. If, if, if God caused us to be born again in Jesus... And we spent the rest of our life in a chain gang. It's like we've been blessed beyond imagination. But here's what I know. No one in this room is in a chain gang. You have homes, you have clothes, you have families, you have Bibles. And we have Christ. And the final thing he says is, I'm going to bring you to a place where there's going to be no more sin. George Whitfield used to say, I can't wait to be in a place where there'll be no more sin, especially my sin. Do you ever wonder, I'm reading this, I'm reading on revivals and revivalism, and there was a man that they quoted, oh boy, he's a Southern Presbyterian. And he, he, he said something to the effect of, he used to want to live for a long time because before he died and went to heaven, he wanted to be more sanctified. And then as he grew in the Lord, he thought, you know what? I'd rather just die young because I'm not making any progress anyways. <laughs> this is essentially what he was saying. He looked at his life and said, boy, I'm growing like this much in the Lord. You ever feel like that? You ever look at your life and think, I cannot believe it. I'm 58 years old and I was converted at 26. Why do I still struggle with sin? Why do I do stuff I don't want to do and don't do stuff I do want to do? What's wrong with me? Well, someday God says to all of the people that I'm going to take you to a place that's going to be better than Eden. There'll be no sin there, but it will be immutable. There'll be no, there'll be no devil in the garden. There'll be no ability to defect. It will be perfect. And God holds out his blessings to his enslaved people and says, 
I'm a good God, and I'm your God. Beloved, be encouraged. We have a good God, and we are infinitely blessed in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.